Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Today, I have the unique honor of introducing my father, Dr. James T. Roberson, Jr. Um, My father, uh, who's funny, I told my dad he was my hero in my introduction, and then my dad told me he was, I was his hero. And then I got all emotional, and I was like, chill, dad, not now, not here, okay. But, um, but the reality is, is that uh, for a lot of people, when they come into the ministry, uh, their desire is to have a father in the ministry. But by God's grace, I lived under the ministry of my father. Uh, I was able to be led by him um, and really beginning to see him as a young boy as he was in IBM and he was one of the few African-Americans where he was. But as I got older, I began to learn that being a pioneer was part of who he was. At Millsaps College where he got his bachelor's, uh, he was the first African-American to actually cross the stage. Now, mind you, the reason why this is a big deal is because In the crowd that day, his family was the only black family in the crowd. As he walked across the stage, as he walked across the stage there in Mississippi, you know, he was pioneering every step he took. And so for him to eventually get two master's degrees and for him to get a PhD in administration, to become a dean of a seminary there in Raleigh, North Carolina at Shaw University Divinity School, also become a dean of a seminary there, United Theological Seminary in Dayton, Ohio. He's been a dean for 17 years, but he's always been my daddy. Um, so, oh, dag. <laughs> I was like, I'm not gonna do this. I'm going, you know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm strong. Um, but uh, man, it is such an honor to hear him preach today and to sit under his teaching Um, And this is his first time he's gotten a chance to come to the church, so he got a chance to preach the word here at the church. Uh, But I just get a chance to sit one more time and listen to my daddy. I wonder if you'd stand with me and honor Dr. James T. Roberson, Jr. Please, please be seated. Please be seated. No, I ain't going to sing. <laughs> Y'all want me to sing? <laughs> no, no, I ain't. Come, come on down. <laughs> I'll leave that for other members of the family. Amen. <laughs> I wonder if you would just uh, bow with me for a second. God, we thank you for your blessings. We thank you for the opportunity to serve. We thank you for this service. And God, we thank you for the opportunity to be here with my son um, and sharing this moment of worship and praise with him. Bless now your word as it goes forward and take me out of self and 
You speak through my lips. Let your word go forth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Wow. I'm a little bit nervous, y'all. Um, hmm. it's, it's especially touching to, <laughs> to watch uh, the one that you diapered, the one that you had to spank, the one that you had to put in line, all the time praying that something good will come out of it, to now see him pastoring his own congregation. It's a blessing. And it is especially a blessing for me. I, I remember... When I was uh, working for IBM, I, 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 I did a lot of traveling, and this guy, Carl Straub, he worked with me, and he was of German background, and he was telling me that, I mean, he could not trace his family back through two generations, and I remember the picture of me and my grandfather and my father and Bumper. Y'all know Bumper? <laughs> I remember that picture showing four generations of black men. Now, the, the, the beauty of that is that most of the kids that I went to school with wasn't no black man in the family. Y'all can't feel that, can you? They were either where? In jail or dead or strung out. And to have... I kind of I kind of get the feeling of I, I I know what God meant when He said, "This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased," and I thank God for a son like this. Amen. Amen. Give Bumper a hand, y'all. Let's hear it for Bumper. <laughs> Now, uh, I do need to get into the Word, and let me just say here, um, I grew up in Moss Point, y'all. Um, and back in the 50s and 60s, that was no joke. I mean, that was a real situation. As a matter of fact, if I could just be personal for a second, I remember walking down the street, Elder Street, and my grandmother, Mama Bess, had a great big tree in the front of her house. And I was walking down the street, coming close to that tree, and there was a car coming down the street. 
And I ran and got behind the tree. And as the car moved, I would make sure that I was out of sight of the car. Because it was not unusual for a black kid to be walking down the street and get anything thrown at them. And I wondered, as I stood there and watched that car disappear, <laughs> will I make it out of Mississippi alive? Um, you know, I, I, I'm about Emmett Till's age. Y'all don't even know Emmett Till, do you? <laughs> and, and for a black kid, I was pretty brazen. <laughs> I was pretty bold. <laughs> and um, I, 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 I just knew I wasn't going to make it out alive, but thank God I made it out. I, I praise God for that. <laughs> I can't stay on that. I got to move. <laughs> but when I was growing up, I saw people steeped in their belief about certain other people. I saw people that believed that they had a right to oppress other people. They honestly believed that. <laughs> and they would exegete the Bible to show you. And I wondered what would make a person, y'all pray that I don't fall off the stage. <laughs> I wondered what would make a person be so passionate about something that was wrong? How could you honestly hold me down? How, how could you do that? And that, that, that was one, you know, I... That, Growing up in Mississippi was, 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 was a challenge, and I saw a lot of things. <clears throat> I'm going to preach in a minute. And I, 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 I saw that kind of person that, that, that did something intentionally thinking they were right. And I thought that, that, that something's got to be wrong with that. And I saw another kind of person. Um, <laughs> I knew this deacon who, you know, back in the day, if, 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 if a girl got pregnant, y'all don't know nothing about this, and they would make her come before the church, oh yeah, and, and apologize to the church. Y'all don't know nothing about this? Lord have mercy. And um, I saw a deacon sit in judgment of a young lady who had gotten pregnant and this brother was shacking all the time. Not with his wife, with somebody else. How could people give one impression but do something else? How could you sit in judgment on me when you are more guilty than I am? 
And so there's two kinds of people that I was trying to, I was trying to reckon, how, how, how do you deal with those people? And I came up with something, Paul was very helpful in helping me understand this. There are two things to look at. In the one case, when the person is doing something bad and, 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 and they are passionate about it, I believe that, and I, and I learned this from uh, going to school in Mississippi, some people earnestly and honestly believe that what they are doing is right. And, and the second set of people, they have resigned themselves to being duplicitous. Huh? They have signed up to be a hypocrite. And they have decided that I'm going to go on and live the lie. And, and, and I'll bathe in it. And Paul's letter to the Romans helps me to understand where those two people were, what those kinds of people, what's going on in their head. Paul's letter to the Romans was, some theologians suggest, the first systematic theology treatment. And Paul suggests in his letter in that 12th chapter, he says, and I'm reading the NIV. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to view, in view of God's mercy, to offer yourselves, but your bodies, as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. King James says, this is your reasonable service. And do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you, are able, you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul is suggesting to us here that... We are to do, we, we are dealing with two things that we have to grapple with. We are dealing with conforming and transforming. Well, let's talk about conforming. What does it mean to conform? It means to comply with rules and regulations and laws and standards. And if you think about it, when we are first born, we are introduced to an educational paradigm that teaches us how to conform. The very first thing you learn Mama said, this is the schedule you will use. And you will get milk when I say you get milk. And you will conform to this schedule. First, there was me and Mama. 
But then my circle of influence grows. And next thing I know, it's me and the immediate family. Well, there's a pecking order <laughs> in the family. Somebody ought to say amen up in here. <laughs> and I have my place in that order. And I'm taught by the family to stay in your place, boy. Stay in your lane. Y'all know that phrase. <laughs> you are taught to conform not necessarily to what is right, but to what other people said is right. And the circle of influence grows wider from immediate family to extended family. First, there was mama and daddy and brothers and sisters. Now, all of a sudden, there's grandmama, grandpapa, uncles and aunts and everybody telling me what to do. And all of them are telling me that I must conform. I must fit in. And the house that I grew up in, you don't challenge the authority figure. Anybody feel that? Well, Daddy, what a because I said so. And that's all you need. That is to say, as we were being taught to conform, we took in information uncritically. We didn't analyze it. We just took it in because that's what they said. And as our influence grows wider, not only is there the immediate family, but when we go out into the community, there are our peers. We go to school, there's the teacher. We go to church, there's the preacher. We go out on the street, there's the police. And all of these authority figures telling us that we have to conform. We have to fit in right here. This is where you fit in. Uh, in each case, we are taught the rules, and you don't challenge the rules, you follow the rules. So we are taught to conform. Uh, developmental psychologists suggest to us that as we grow as individuals, uh, we are developing in three different ways our physical development, our cognitive development, and our socio-emotional development. And I don't have time to go into the other two, but I do want to talk about cognitive development. Because cognition is the mental process or the mental action of acquiring knowledge and understanding through thought, experience, and the senses. We learn how to cope with the world through these things. And the cognitive process uses existing knowledge to generate new knowledge. That is to say, you use what you know to make sense out of what you don't know. Let me, let, me, let me try it again. 
<laughs> we see the world through a set of lens. Those lens are shaped by those authority figures who taught us to conform so that we make sense out of new stuff based on what we've been taught and how we learn to conform. So that means we teach others to conform <laughs> just like we've been taught to conform. And as we make sense of the world in this cognitive process, we run into three situations. The first situation is we use our knowledge to gain new knowledge and the new knowledge is complementary, compatible with our existing knowledge. And so we're cool, okay? Everything works fine, we keep moving. We just learn more of the, uh, the new knowledge. But then we can also encounter a situation where the information we get is competing. It's consistent, but it's competing. It gives us options. Whereas we, we could only go this way, now we can go several ways, but the information is still consistent. But the third one is the most critical one, is when you generate new knowledge and it conflicts with the knowledge you already have. When you generate information that is totally out of agreement with everything you ever learned. Uh, Psychologists would suggest to us that when we encounter this conflict, we fall into what they call cognitive dissonance. Lord have mercy. Is that what it said right there? <laughs> Where we engage in a mental discomfort about a situation that goes against our grain. It's inconsistent with what we've been taught. And we have to do something with it. We can't just let it sit. And some people decide <laughs> when the dissonance is not <clears throat> too large, we just sweep it under the rug, huh? and we ignore it, which says, I sign up to live a lie. Anybody out here? Which says, I know what I'm doing is wrong. But I've decided to pretend it's okay. I know ain't nobody in here like that. But I know what I'm doing is wrong. 
and I'm going to live with it. The other side of that, and Jack Mesero is the person that I accuse for this, is when the dissonance gets too large for me to handle. I mean, it's waking me up at night. Huh? And when the dissonance evolves to that point, Mesero says it erupts into what he calls a disorienting dilemma. Hmm? A situation where something's got to give. I've got to either change the way I think or I got to change my walk. Something's got to give. I can no longer continue to walk the same way and think the same thing. When I reach that point, Mesero says, I have just entered into what he calls transformative learning. Let me give you an example, the example I gave this morning about a disorienting dilemma. As I said, I grew up in Mississippi, and um, I remember when uh, James Meredith integrated Ole Miss, and uh, <laughs> I remember standing up in my father's house, and my grandfather, Papa Justice, says to me, son, do you ever think you go and integrate one of them schools? <laughs> I said, no, Papa. <laughs> I'm just going to sit back and wait and let somebody else do it. And then I'll come in and get the benefits of it. But then as I thought about it, I thought that ain't right. And so I was a student at Jackson State, HBCU. And I decided to go across town and enroll at Millsaps College. At the time, it was a Methodist school, and it was all white. And I enrolled. They accepted me in. <laughs> they, <laughs> they <laughs> here's the joke. Here's the joke. They took me in because I told them I was majoring in mathematics. And they thought that was a joke. And so they accepted me with their conforming thought that there ain't no way he can hang at Millsaps in mathematics. Nevertheless, I enrolled and I took a differential equations class. How I many of y'all know differential equations? All right. <laughs> and the instructor told us that we were getting ready for Christmas vacation. He said, at the, when the Christmas day season is over, I'm going to give you all an exam. So I went home, and I took my book, and I worked every problem I could find in the book. I made sure I was ready when the test time came. Well, we came back, and he gave us a test. And I noticed that as I was taking the test, I mean, folk were, you know, finishing up and passing that paper in. And, 
and then half the class was gone, and I'm still that struggling, you know, and getting all ready, right, get t- close to the end of class, and and, and uh, I'm the only one in there, and I'm still struggling, and I'm beginning to think, well, maybe I am, a, maybe I am dumb or something, you know. But I finally finished. I had a minute and 30 seconds left. I turned my paper in. When the instructor comes back and posts the grades, he said that I would have graded this test on a curve. But at the last minute, somebody blew the curve. Wait a minute. And here are the grades. The grades went 100, 62, 61, 60, on down. And then the students became curious and wanted to know who blew the curve. <laughs> they went around and asked everybody in the classroom except me. What did you make on the test? And when they had concluded that nobody made 100, they went back and accused the professor of lying. And he simply challenged them to make sure you check everybody. And then I was standing in the coffee shop one day, drinking a cup of coffee, getting ready to go to work. And there were two girls standing over in the corner, and they would say something, and they'd look in my direction and say something else, and you know, you know they're talking about you, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and one of them got up enough nerve to come over to me and ask, and this is where I like to use my southern dialect, said, James, what did you make on the test? And I stood on the shoulders of Papa Justice. Who started the NAACP in Moss Point. I stood on the shoulders of Daddy T, my father. I stood on the shoulders of all of those slaves that had walked through Mississippi I took my paper and I said, check it out. Here's here's the catch though. This is what you got to understand. The one girl says to the other one, I told you so. And then it began to happen. A disorienting dilemma started welling up in her because the first thing she said was, may we sit down? Now, if you knew anything about Mississippi in the 60s, white women don't ask black men to sit down. Black men get out of the way when white women come around. If you don't believe it, ask Emmett Till. I said, sure. They sat. 
And this is what the girl said to me, which blew my mind. She says, you know, I have never talked to a black person as a person. I've always talked to the servant, to the dishwasher, to the cook, to the janitor, but I've never talked to someone that I could not deny was on my intellectual level. I, I have never looked at a black person like that. What was happening to this young lady? She had just encountered an experience that went totally against everything she had ever learned. All of a sudden, she's got to say, well, wait a minute now. Mama must have been lying to me. When daddy told me what he told me about black people, that couldn't have been true. And, 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 and you know, it's, 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 it's hard to go against what I call mama's milk. The, the stuff that you grew up on, that you were raised on, mama gave that to you and mama don't give you nothing bad. And you took it because mama gave it to you and now it's hard to go against what mama taught you. But not only, not only that, oh, I remember now going to that segregated church and now what they taught me, everything goes up in smoke now. And she was experiencing a disorienting dilemma. Mesereau says that that is the first stage to what he calls transformative learning. Well, that's interesting, preacher. What's that got to do with the gospel? Well, let's ask Paul. Paul, can you help us out? Paul said, yeah. When I was born, I was a thoroughbred Jew. I was a Benjamite. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was raised by a Roman citizen, and my daddy was a Pharisee. And we well respected the Lord. I went to the best school in Tarsus, and I studied under the best professors that they had. I was well educated. Paul says, not only that, but I have a deep passion for God's law. And... and I want everybody to know and understand what God means when he says his law. And then, and then Paul says, I have a theology that says God gave the law on a mountain to Moses. And that law is to be lived by and there's no getting around it. Paul says, my theology says that we are to take the blood of goats and heifers and take that blood and sprinkle it on sensic objects, and that will account for the remission of sin. Paul says, and not only that, there's a place inside the temple. Y'all still with me? Yeah. 
and it's called the Holy of Holies. And there the Ark of the Covenant sits, and the mercy seat is on top of it. And God comes down and sits there at the mercy seat, and only the high priest can go back behind the curtain that separates the holy from the holy of holies. And if he ain't right, God will strike him dead, and they'll have to drag him out. My theology says nobody goes back there and talks to my God. And, and not only that, there's a veil, a thick veil that separates the two. And my God is high and lifted up. Nobody can look at God. And so that is the theology that, Mo, uh, that, that Paul was living with. But Paul had heard about <laughs> a group of what I'll call renegade Jews. And they were teaching a new doctrine. They, they said, instead of the law now, you got to live by faith. Instead of the law, they said, you got to go by grace and mercy. Instead of the blood of goats and heifers, they're talking about the blood of a man who says he died on Calvary's cross and that his blood is the remission of sin. Instead of the priest going back and talking to God, amen, they're talking about you are your own priest. You don't need nobody to go to God. You go to God yourself. God will take you. Instead of a high and lifted up God, we're talking about Emmanuel. God is down here with us. God walks the street with me. They're teaching a theologist said that somebody, probably one of them thieves in the night, went and tore the curtain in half. <laughs> Paul, not only had he heard about their theology, but he was walking one day and he saw a crowd gathering. There was a big commotion going on. And he went over there to check it out. And they had this young man. His name was Stephen. And they had a bunch of stones. And they were throwing stones at him. When Paul inquired, he found out that Stephen was preaching about this Jesus and the, 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 the Sanhedrin council couldn't take it. And so they decided to stone him. But Paul remembered the words that Stephen yelled as he was giving up the ghost. Stephen said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Paul, though, was still sticking to what he was taught. He was still conforming. And <laughs> Paul decided that his mission, his ministry, was to wipe out this renegade group. So Paul goes to the high priest and gets a letter and decides to go and get a bunch that were hanging out down in Damascus. Paul was riding with his posse, headed down the Damascus Road. 
And I can imagine if I can use my sanctified imagination that as he was galloping on his horse, he could still hear Stephen say, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And as he was riding, he began to feel a ruminating, welling up in his belly. And it wasn't nothing but the name of Jesus. And every step he took, that name got a little louder, Jesus. He'd go a little further and he'd hear Jesus until all of a sudden Paul couldn't take it no more and he was knocked off of his beast. Lying prostrate on the ground, he heard a voice saying, Paul, or Saul rather, why, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? I'm Jesus who you persecuted. He says, now look, I'm tell you what, Paul. Get up, go on into Damascus, and somebody's going to come and tell you what's got to happen. He gets up, he goes into Damascus. You know the story. Uh, he went to, uh, Ananias comes to him and helps him to see, and scales, as it were, fell from his eyes. When Paul recovered from his disorienting dilemma, Paul had to now rethink everything that he had been taught. Paul had to go back and look at the law again. He had to go back and reconsider what they had taught him. And that's why he says that we are not to be conformed by this world but we are to be transformed. And what, what do you mean uh, we have to be transformed, Paul? Well, if you have not experienced, now, 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 now caution, I didn't say if you know, because knowing and experiencing are two different things. You may know Jesus, but if you have not experienced Jesus, then you have not made it yet. And Paul says, you got to go back and experience the presence of Jesus in your life. and Then you will be able to be transformed. Because when he comes in, he will give you a new life. He will give you a new vision. He will give you a new reason for living. He will give you new things. He will give you what you cannot see as long as you conform to this world. And then lastly, my personal testimony. As I uh, worked my way through life, I too, like Paul, persecuted the church. <laughs> I used to say some strange things, y'all. <laughs> My sister was scared to ride with me. <laughs> um, and I used to take classes just so I could argue with you Christians. Because y'all didn't know what y'all were talking about. And I would seek you out and challenge you. And I went all the way through college like that. And uh, I went and got my master's degree in computer science, and I was doing good in IBM until I think it was a day in November of 1969 when I stood in the delivery room and watched my firstborn 
come into this world. And I watched a little piece of humanity, lifeless, in the doctor's hand, sit there and suddenly, (gasps) and started breathing. And that's when God spoke to me and said, who can do that other than me? You tell me who can bring life into this world and give it a kicking start, jump start. Who can do that other than me? And that made me rethink everything about God. I was, I was on the theory of evolution. I had to let that go. I, I, I challenged the Trinity, and now I know the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. I had to rethink everything. I had a master's degree in computer science. I went back to seminary and got a master's of divinity because I had to change my life. I could no longer be conformed to what I was taught earlier in my life. But now I have a new reason for living. I have a new purpose for life. I have a new mission in life. And I am all about doing what God wants me to do. And I'm done now. I'm done now. Just one thing. That's the challenge. That's the challenge to you. I don't know where you are, but if you are still trying to hang on to those rules that you took in uncritically and still living by those, and they've got you locked up and you can't move, Paul wants to let you know that you should not be conformed by this world, but you ought to be transformed and you start that with a renewing of your mind. Start that with you forgetting about all that stuff that you were taught and being transformed by the presence of Jesus in your life. And let me tell you why he can transform you. He himself is the disorienting dilemma. He can come into your life and he can turn your life around. He can pick you up when you're falling down. He can place your feet on solid ground. He can give you a new purpose for living. He can make everything right, no matter where you've been. I don't care what your history was. I don't care how bad it was. Paul was one of the worst men in the world, but God turned him around. God through Jesus Christ. I was one of the worst men in the world, but God got in my life. And wherever you are, God can get in your life. If you let Jesus Christ in. And then lastly, he says, I don't force myself in. I stand at the door and I knock. And if you let me in, I can be a disorienting dilemma and turn your life around. But you have got to let him in. Is this where I dropped the mic? (laughs) And let's stand on our feet right there and honor Dr. Roberson. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. 
We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.